This is Juanita Santana, a former Border Patrol agent, uh, class 224-88 of 88. And this is the All Patrol Headquarters podcast. This is the best job we ever had. Greetings and welcome to episode 6 of the Old Patrol podcast. I'm your host, Gil Mazza. This podcast is dedicated to celebrating and preserving the history, heritage, and legacy of the Old Patrol through the words of those who lived it, with a few shenanigans along the way. Today, we will be talking with retired Old Patrol agent Juanita Santana, who graduated in class 224 on 8888 in Glencoe, Georgia. She's a recipient of the Newton Azraq Award and the first female Border Patrol agent to receive the Purple Cross. For what, you ask? Well, come and hear it for yourself. Ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first, honor always. We're going to get into discussing uh, the probably the biggest incident you're known for, and that's why I wanted to start out with you know talking about your career first and everything because even even uh, uh, setting apart that incident in 1995. Uh, I can see just from the massive um, uh, social media input and everything else that your your work ethic, your integrity, your uh, your performance in the field, and all those things are something that almost every single one of your peers comments on and says that uh, you were out there and you were legendary in your work before this incident ever happened. But um, let's get into that a little bit and your shooting incident. And um, set it up for us. Explain to us from the beginning what happened that day and, 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 and what transpired. Sure. Uh, you need to know that the anniversary is coming up in a couple of days. Really? Uh, it was, yeah, it was June 29th, 1995. And uh, it was hot, like every summer in Tucson, Arizona, can be. And uh, I was working the swing shift. And uh, I remember that. I was assigned to work at the local area, which means taking calls from other agencies. But knowing me, I would be out cruising the south side of town looking for dopers, right? Uh, yeah. That's what I like doing. So I'm not going to be sitting somewhere waiting for DPS to call, you know, that they made a traffic stop with three or with one to go and pick them up and process them. So, um, I, and it's interesting because just that day I ran into some of the DEA agents that I worked with before at the office. They were killing time before they went to do a dope deal. And they said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm the local unit. I'm going to get in a big cluster that you're going to have to come over and figure it out. Boy, <laughs> did I not know that. Oh, <laughs> it, my gosh. Yeah, and I got into it with my supervisor because he gave me uh, a vehicle that didn't meet my standards uh -huh. because I wanted overhead lights. I wanted a newer unit and I wanted overhead lights so I could make traffic stops. And he says, Juani, just get out there. I know you're going to be out there and you're going to do your job and you're going to bust your back for me. So just leave the station. I was so mad. <laughs> so I went to get... um. I went to get one illegal alien from the South Tucson Police Department. I came back and processed him, and I went to his office. He says, here. And he hands me his keys, which is a brand-new Suburban. 
And I was so happy because those suburban had overhead lights, not mm -hmm. just the grill lights, right? Yes. So I was so happy. There I go. I have wheels. Now I can chase someone, right? Even though it was a two-wheel drive suburban, I was just happy that it had overhead lights. So we talked and uh, we reconciled from our previous encounters of, you're going to go out there. I'm like, I want a new vehicle. And he says, no, you're going to work regardless, you know. So he says, hey, you want to do coffee later? I said, sure, let's go coffee and pie like later in the evening so i went to the south side of town because i knew having been assigned to dea and asu in the past that they would use all nogales highway which is that road that pretty much parallels i-19 mm -hmm. from nogales to I know, Tucson. It, I know it well and it's just and it's just a branch right it's just a little road and um, so i like sixth avenue and then I, I liked merging. I was always patrolling 6, 12, Valencia, Irvington, Ahoway. That's where, because it's so close to I-10 and I-19, that's where they would need to drop off the loads, you know, when they came off the highway. Mm -hmm. And they used I-19, but they knew that the sheriff department was I-19. The border patrol was an I-19. Highway patrol was an I-19. Everyone with a gun and a badge was an I-19. And I knew this, right? Yeah. So I'm patrolling. Um, I, I made a traffic stop and I got like six illegal aliens from an unmarked taxi, which was which was the thing back then in 95. So I had this agent, Richie Perez, says, hey, I'll come and get those bodies from you. And I said, great. So I processed them. I called the tow truck and he takes the bodies and it was hot. It hit 107. And I was burning up with the bulletproof vest on. It was hot. And remember, I had been on the side of the road. So I get on my truck and I'm thinking, well, I have a healthy lunch. I have carrots. I have strawberries. Let me cool down. Let me turn. For one instant, I thought, let me go back to the station. I take the vest off. It's oh. too hot. But then I calm down and I said oh let me turn the AC on and let me cool down and let me cruise and uh, so what a great decision I made then yes to eat my lunch and to cruise with the air conditioner on right yeah so going south on Old Nogales Highway like south of the casino and south of the big Boeing plant I see these guys and they had a small compact car um, it was a Dutch spirit, and it was three of them, dark-tinted windows, young M&Ms, young Mexican males. And I said, oh, baby, those guys are up to no good. But I couldn't find a turnaround spot. Remember, I now have a Suburban. Yes. So I can't quite turn around. So I had to drive quite a ways to find a place to make the U-turn. So I made the U-turn. I finally catch up to them. And by then, the freeway opens up. The road opens up, like, into two lanes of traffic on both ways so I can catch up to them with the plate and it came back to Francisco Rodriguez on the south side of town I was like oh yeah and the driver looked like Francisco Rodriguez and uh, so I pulled up to the driver I took a look and he gave me a challenging look I slowed down then went to the right side and I looked at the passenger and he nods his head like hey and I looked at him, and I immediately think this guy's a USC. I'm immediately thinking this guy's a USC. And then there's a guy in the back seat that I couldn't quite see because of the dark tinted windows. But I could see his body 
moving around in the back seat. And he kept on shuffling back and forth. And I'm thinking, that guy is illegal, right? I mm -hmm. said, that guy in the back is going to be illegal. So I made the stop and I called it in, um, you know, Nogales Highway. I called it in and I usually just, you know, wait for a spot where the, where the, the, he would have ample space to pull over. Yeah. And, and I would have great field to walk. So it's a nice long stretch and a really good shoulder. So I made the stop and uh, he doesn't yield right away. So I hit the air horn and I point to him. Yeah, it's you pull over. You know, remember, I have overhead lights, but he's got a Dutch spirit and my vehicle is higher. So I'm thinking he can't see my lights, but when he hits the air horn, he knows it's for him. Mm -hmm. So he he starts yielding, and I yield with him, and I pull over, and I had called it in, right? Always call in your stops. That's yeah. what you have the radio for. So I, I called it in, and um, from the academy, they would teach us to unsnap our holster, and turn the handheld radio on, you know, just immediately the minute you 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 get out of your vehicle. So I'm on. my holster is on snap, my radio is on, and I'm walking forward. And they taught us, our journeyman taught us from way back when to always fill the trunk lid for the weight. Because it comes from the old patrol days that if there are bodies in the trunk, you're going to feel the weight. Mm -hmm. Well, I could hear loud rap music. And I'm thinking, oh, these guys are going to be citizens. This gonna, they, they're, they're listening to rap. They fix the, you know, those large speakers that they put in the trunk of the car. Yes. So I said, there's a big speaker in the trunk. And these guys are going to be citizens. This is going to be short and sweet. Well, it was short and sweet, but for the wrong reasons, right? So when I'm approaching the gas tank, I see the blue cloud of smoke, and I felt the impact on my chest. So the driver, and only the driver, opened fire at me. You need to know this is like 5.25 in the afternoon, so it's plenty daylight yes. because it's summertime. Uh -huh. So all I see is the blue cloud of smoke, and I feel the impact, and I can hear... Uh, his shots being fired, and I can hear this cap, cap, cap in the background. And, you know, remember how you become a light and noise sensitive, you know, and the adrenaline goes to the, to the roof. And I don't remember drawing my weapon at all, period. Uh, but I do remember, like, vividly hearing my journeyman telling me to seek cover. You know, and I don't know if it was my journeyman or training officers from the academy, but it's like back off, back off, reach for cover, look for cover. So, so I was trying to get behind his car while he's shooting at me. And you need to know that leaning forward to shoot and taking several steps backward, kind of like in a hurry, it's very awkward. It's very awkward. That's not how you normally shoot at the range, right? Uh, it's, it's very different. And at the time, I had a revolver. We had not switched to uh, the Berreras then. So he hit me about five times, and you count them, you know. And uh, he hit me in my gun belt, and center of mass, I was hit twice. And my left forearm, I, I'm hit also. But I never hit the ground, but I did empty out my gun on him, and he put it in gear. Probably because he was shocked that I didn't die and I didn't fall to the ground. Yeah. He put it in gear and he took off at a high rate of speed. And uh, 
one of my shots hit, uh, you know, where in the trunk the car say Dodge Spirit. I dotted the eye on spirit. So I've taken plenty of grief throughout the years over this, okay? Uh-huh. So they put it in gear and, and they took off and I came back to my vehicle and I'm wounded, but uh, I'm standing, right? And I'm, I'm not gonna quit. And, and I look at my arm and it's bleeding and I open up my shirt quickly and, and I have a cut on my chest. But, you know, I got on the radio and I had to wait for radio traffic because there was some traffic going on, so I'm counting 1,001, 1,002. Oh. And you need to know that I used to practice this at night. I would drive around town thinking, if something happens to me, this is what I'm going to say in the radio. If something happens to my partner, this is what I'm going to say in the radio, and I'm going to stay calm, mm. because I want them to come and help me. I need backup, so I'm going... And I used to drive on midnight shift, practicing what I would say. Well, you know, yes, and uh, so I wait and I count 1,000. I get like to 1,005 when they answer me, and I, you know, and I very calmly I tell them, Shots fired, shots fired. I'm hit several times. The vehicle, you know, it's now northbound towards Valencia, and I put it in gear and I chase them down because I was so furious. <laughs> and as long as I, as I had a breath in me, I was going to get them. There was no way they were not going to get away. And my dear cattle fairy had taught me that you can run people over with your vehicle or you can run them with your vehicle. Remember, I'm driving a suburban. Yes. So out of the, through my peripheral vision, I see an explosion. And what happened is they collided with the car. Uh, They are making a left-hand turn into Calle Medina. And how do I know this? Because you had to know your area, right? I used to get into a lot of situations, so you have to know where you are at all times. So they, they're making a left turn into Cayo Medina. They re-rent a vehicle that is waiting to turn left. So they re-rendered it, and they destroyed the front end of their car. And I'm right behind them. So they pull off to the shoulder, to the side of the road, and there's a field, and there are a lot of mature uh, mesquite trees and bushes and trees and they start running out of the car so i slow down and the the driver has this moment where he pauses in front of the car and he looks at me and i'm looking at him and i'm thinking i can't chase after them i haven't reloaded yet i have yet to reload and i'm wounded i don't know how badly wounded i am but you don't care right now driving them on the radio sorry i said but you don't care right now no, 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 I was too mad. Have you ever seen a Puerto Rican really mad? Uh, I was furious. Okay, I was livid. And to me, it was like, how dare you do this to me? I'm a Border Patrol agent. How dare you? Who do you think you are? <laughs> you know, I, I, this is going through your mind and, and your adrenaline is in Jupiter. And this is milliseconds. And it takes seconds for you to get shot. And you don't have that long-standing gun battle like in the movies. No, 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 no. That goes on really fast. The lights come on and the show is on immediately. But I was really furious. And uh, so I see them running through the trees and I continue driving down the street. And and I have called it, right? So people start responding, responding. And I get down to the end of Calle Medina and uh, Felix Chavez calls me on the radio and he says, Hey! Why don't you assess your injuries? Make sure you're okay. You know? And what a great 
voice to hear on the radio because he slowed me down. Mm. I was on that adrenaline high, right? And he slowed me down. So, And someone else had asked, are you sure you're on Taya Medina? Well, I knew I was in Taya Medina because location, location, location. Mm-hmm. You have to know where you are if you went back up. So my knowledge of the area was extensive, especially of the south side, right? So I knew I was in Taya Medina mm-hmm. without a doubt. I know I was in all Nogales Highway and Calle Medina. So when I'm making that turn to come back and confirm the street sign, because I was a little bit excited at the time, you know, I had just been shot five times. Yeah. And I was chasing these guys down. And Chavez calls me down and he, I literally hit the brake, put it in park in the middle of the road and opened up my shirt. And I could see I had an injury but I could see that it was a flesh injury. I opened up my, you know, my gun belt, and I could see small cuts from my speed loaders being blown up. But I knew my guts were not sticking out, and I looked at my arm, and I knew I was not going to die. You know, this is not the day. So I said to him, I am okay. I was hit five times. I'm wearing my bulletproof vest. I am definitely okay. Because I also wanted for the agents that are responding to not get in a car wreck, which often happens, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I wanted to to know. I wanted them to know that I was alive, that I was well, and that they needed to get here ASAP to go get these guys. That's what I wanted them to know, and that's what I had planned all along. And what was you know emphasizing training to me to stay calm. And, you know, some people can't stand to see their own blood. I saw my blood all over the steering wheel, the side of the door, in my uniforms. But I didn't care because I was breathing. I was alive. And I was determined. And you were mad as hell. Oh, I was so mad. You have no idea how mad I was. I was so furious at these guys. You must have looked like hell on wheels coming up behind them, like death personified. I would have paid to be a fly inside that car at that moment, okay? Yes, <laughs> so, me too. Me, oh my gosh. So the driver was Francisco Rodriguez, who, by the way, had a glass eye. Uh, the passenger was a guy by the name of Quintero. And the guy in the back seat, he was an illegal alien hmm. from Mexico. Quintero was a uh, USC. Francisco like- Rodriguez was a resident alien, right? The shooter is the resident alien. And they had three kilos of cocaine and $45,000 cash in the truck, Mm. which, of course, they abandoned, you know, and the gun. And uh, so at that point, you know, I go back. Once Chavez has me confirmed that I'm okay, I go back and I read the street sign. And by golly, it's Taya Medina, right? Mm -hmm. So I came back and I parked behind uh, their vehicle waiting for medics and for backup and and Richie Perez, the guy that has just transported the aliens for me, shows up and says, hey, what happened to you? And I said, I got a boo-boo, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so mad and I showed him my arm that is bleeding. I got a boo-boo. Can't get these guys, you know? And then like a thousand cops showed up in every uniform you can think of. And it was one of those beautiful, splendid, Tucson, Arizona sunsets with the skies purple and orange and pink. And, and I said, what a beautiful day not to die. You you know, because I thought it. it would have been a glorious day to die. But 
dad had other plans for me that day, you know. My God. Uh, yeah, he, he sure did. He, he sure did, you know. And uh, you, lo- you learn a lot of lessons, you know, but you have these plans, right? You have to deposit your faith in God. You're doing this tough job. It wasn't anything personal. I was a Border Patrol agent in uniform. That was it. And I crossed their paths, right? But yes. I, I knew that I was never going to give up, you know. I had the mental toughness for the fight and to never quit. And you also learn how fragile and how vulnerable we can be, you know. And you come to terms with your mortality later on, you know. When I looked at the two bullet holes in between the shirt buttons in the center of mass, I was like, wow, that was close. It's a good thing I didn't go to the station and took my best stuff. Yes, know? yes. Now, um, Felix Chavez, the one who called you initially and calmed you down and got you to kind of uh, regroup, is he the yes. same that was that's the USBP chief there at Laredo that just retired? Yes, that would be him. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, he was Vortex, so he gets stuck at the station with a tank full of illegal aliens to process because everybody fled driving at 100 miles an hour to get to me. So he gets stuck processing. And he's the guy answering the phone because then the phones blew up for the next, you know, several hours. So he's stuck at the station. He can't come and back me up and he can't, he can't show up because he's got aliens to process. You know, it, it is what it is, right? Yes. Yeah, but he was really good to me. That voice in the radio did magic to me. You know, that for sure. Yeah, and it's it just amazing to me. Um, the spirit of a warrior that you have within you is just something that is um, that's taught in uh, academies. It's taught at uh, you know Lieutenant Colonel Grossman goes around the, the you know the killing mind, and he tells you about that uh, warrior mentality. And I am just awed and amazed at the clarity of focus you had, the 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 drive, the the motivation. You know. Why do you think, and when so many people react so differently to shootings and incidents and, you know, attempts on their life or getting shot, what do you, what do you say, what, you know, what made the difference for you to be able to keep that, to maintain your composure the way you did? You know, I, I think training and the years of experience and that, then I have seven years in, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I have been through a number of things already. And, uh, and and I used to encounter a lot of people with guns. And one of the things I decided early on, and, and you need to know, I used to go to the field without my best time early on. Then I had this guy cross me in the hallway one time. His name is Bud Tuffley, Ed Tuffley. And he says, hey, I said, yeah, you want to be out there? doing traffic stops, better put your vest on, okay? And I said, yes, sir. And I never took my vest off. <laughs> I was terrified of that guy. <laughs> and I was like, okay, he's got a point, you know? So, and, and it would get unbearably hot. And yes. there were times he would take it off. And on those hikes, you know, they were brutal. So we didn't want to wear them. But you had to because it's part of your gear. If we didn't go anywhere without our handheld radio, without our weapons and our magazines and everything else. Why would we want to go anywhere without our best? 
that was my point, you know. But one of the things I always did, it's like I accepted the fact that I was in a law enforcement profession and I knew this was going to happen. It wasn't a matter of if this happens to me. Yeah. I knew when this happens to me, I want to be ready. I am going to be ready. And that's why I had a plan and I knew I was going to fight. And I had a plan if I got shot and I had a plan if my partner got shot and if they killed my partner, what I was going to do. I always thought about it. I talked on the radio and uh, I, I would listen to other frequencies and other police departments and how people would, some people would stay very calm on the radio and some people would start screaming or speaking tongues that you couldn't understand mm -hmm. what they were mm -hmm. saying. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, it's important I stay calm if I want the National Guard, the Boy Scouts, agents, the Sheriff's <laughs> Department, whoever to come to me. Yeah. If I need backup, I need to stay calm. But I think the training was essential. And, you know, on my attitude that I was not giving up. You know, I, I was not going to quit. And I knew it simply because I was a law enforcement official. Because I was an agent. Nothing personal. There's nothing personal when they come after you like that. You know, it's just what you represent. You're just a threat and they want to eliminate you. That That's all there is to it. But I knew I was not going to go down without a fight. I, I knew I was going to fight to the end. And it seems to me that the, the one of the biggest differences um, between you and um, uh, you know a lot of other agents is the fact that you came to work, you had already decided, I'm going to arrest somebody tonight, one way or the other. I'm going to get into it somewhere, somehow, uh, one way or the other. And therefore, you uh, what they taught us at the academy, you rehearsed I the ideas in your mind, you rehearsed possible scenarios in your mind constantly because you were so dedicated to getting out there and um, and doing your job. Yes, you know, that thing with the guns, right? I was like a magnet for weapons, for encountering vehicles with weapons. And uh, one time, Felix Chavez was my first line supervisor for a while, and he says, you're going to the canyons. You need a break. You're coming across too many guns. You're going to the canyons. So we're on a dirt road, on Ruby Road somewhere, my partner and I, and there's this guy in a pickup truck, and I'm like, oh no, we need to talk to this guy. He shouldn't be here. We turn around, and sure enough, sitting next to him wrapped in a towel is a gun. Yeah. Oh, so when we call the serial number, he calls you on the radio, and he says, where are you? I'm like, I'm on Ruby Road. You sent me to the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> so you couldn't get away from it even if you wanted to. No, exactly, and he wanted me to take a little break, like, girl, you need to get out of here, you know, but it, it, it was going to happen, you know, and God has a greater plan, because I never asked why, I have never questioned why, but he has a greater plan, because he has plans for you, and you should not second guess his plan, you know, yes. because, you know, after that, I went to Miami, and I worked ASU, I finally got my dream job of becoming an ASU agent and I was a productive ASU agent and we worked really good cases and I worked undercover in Miami and uh, and then you know with the merge I went to HSI right I went to ICE because I was ASU I was an 1811 when the hostile takeover took place and then I worked uh, crimes against children and I was able to rescue children that were being abused so I think God had a greater plan for me 
so I could be, you know, the person that went to save them, you know, the person that went to, to change their lives forever. So he has a plan. We just don't need to know it. Yes, ma'am. Uh, and so you um, had a 27-year 20, career in law enforcement, and you did the first 10 years in the Border Patrol, correct? I did. I was uh, from 12, 12 years in okay. uniform. Okay. Yes. And, yeah. then, and then you yes. moved on That's from there to ASU in Miami. Yes. And then yeah. from there. So uh, um, tell us a little bit about the aftermath. In other words, you, you know, you had this major incident, an incident, again, that has, has become legendary in the uh, in the history and, and the legacy of the patrol. You'll always be one of those, uh, uh, you know, examples at the academy of what to do in this situation out there, you know, uh, working the field. Um, what happened afterwards, uh, what, what we know um, after the incident? Well, you know that you have, you, you need recovery time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like I had physical injuries that I needed to recover from. And uh, though there were, you know, they were minor, but you still, you know, the interesting thing is they called me the next day to come and write my memo. <laughs> of course. Of I, I course. went home from the hospital. I went home from the hospital, but they called me the next day and they said, you need to come to the station. You need to write a memo. I'm uh, like, really? Yeah. So my supervisor says, just write one paragraph. <laughs> and I said, okay. He says, yeah, the lawyers are going to get a hold of this, so you need to keep it brief. So I had a friend that, that kindly, she picked me up at the house and then we went to Rodolfo's where we used to stop and get a breakfast burrito. It was a reliable place to eat mm. Mexican food near the station, right? I understand. And uh, and then I was like, wow, it's cold in here. So that was one of those awakenings where I'm alive. I can feel the cold. Because you're in a daze for days. It feels surreal. And, uh, and then you have your phone burning up, right? Your phone burning up and people showing up at your house. Of course. And, uh, and then you're left alone. You know, you shouldn't be alone for the first 48 hours anyhow, but they leave you alone and that. Uh, and then things start beginning to slow down and you start healing. And I went to physical therapy because my back got a little bit out of sight. I guess with the, the blood force trauma to my chest, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and I didn't fall to the ground. So your body jerks forward like in the movies. But, um, but. And you have nightmares. I would have nightmares. I would have uh, black and white nightmares. And then I went to see the shrink, which, you know, uh, we had already met because I had already witnessed shooting incidents and things like that. So we kind of like know each other. But, you know, so you have to go see the, the shrink and, uh, and then you get incorporated back to the field. And my supervisor wanted me to drive the same vehicle I drove that day. And I'm like, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, you have to get into that horse again. Literally, I'm like, you're just not good. And uh, he, I wanted to go back to work on a Sunday. And he didn't want me to go back to work on a Sunday because that was his day of duty. Yeah. And he wanted to hold my hand. And I'm like, are you crazy? So all my DA friends were like, hey, listen, they just want to keep an eye on you. Make sure you're not trigger happy now. Okay. I'm like, seriously? So you have these people giving you all these weird ideas, right? Yes. But uh, when I first went back to the field, they paired me up with people, paired me up with people, and I used to ride alone a lot. 
you know, so when they finally gave me a vehicle by myself, that was quite interesting. My first traffic stop was, you know, um, was quite a different kind of traffic stop because I was just getting my feet wet again, yes. you know. But I would see blue Dutch spirits and my head would snap, you know. But of course, it's natural. It comes back to you. Yes. But, uh, but it's what you do with it and, uh, and how you go with it. You know, going back to shoot, that was uh, something else. So um, my firearms instructor said that you need to teach me a few things because I had messed up. And I'm like, no, I didn't. I'm alive. <laughs> You know, yes. so I asked a friend who, who is a firearms nut and an instructor, I said, hey, you want to take me to the range? So we went to the private range and I told him, I'm feeling nauseous. And he says, well, there's plenty of sun going to puke over there. We're going to keep on shooting, you know, but he had me shooting, running backwards and you can shoot running backwards, you know, and, uh, and I felt so much more serene after that, you know, the smell of gunpowder. Um, bothered me, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and and there were days I would go to the range and I would have a great day, and there were days I didn't want to go to the range, you know, so you, and you can't predict how you're going to feel on those days, you know, and sometimes a noise would trigger nightmares, and I have PTSD, but it's a bag that you cannot pack too tight, it's yeah. a part of you, it goes with you everywhere, and it's how you cope with it, you know. Um, so, so sometimes that will I always, have nightmares, sometimes I don't. That will always be a part of you. Yes, it's always going to be a part. It's like my scar on my chest. I call it my zipper because it looks like a zipper, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But I can look at it and I'm alive. And my arm has two small round little holes, you know, scars from... It was a, it was a nine mil that he was shooting. So that's what shows in my arm. It's two perfectly little round holes, you know. Uh, but but I'm okay with it because I'm alive and I lived to tell, you know. And, and that was a very tough summer where there were a lot of shootings. Uh, the summer of 95 was not friendly towards law enforcement, mm -hmm. I assure you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I always said that it's the heat, that people go a little bit crazy when it's that hot. Yeah. You know, yeah. And uh, did did, did, any, did they take pictures of the vest and uh, and 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 all that? Any, anything like that from back then? You know what? I, I don't have any of that. I don't know where my vest ended or my shirt. Because of course, you know, Tucson Police Department showed up and at the hospital, and uh, they want to take my uniforms. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I came to work as a border patrol agent. I'm going home as a border patrol. I was feisty, and I gave them a hard time. And it took a long time for someone to convince me, hey, your uniforms are evidence. You know, That's I right. gave up my gun belt without hesitation on the scene. I think I gave it to Clyde Bensonhofer, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, the paramedics that were treating me, they said, hey, the press is already here. There are cameras here. Uh, how do you want to do this? You can walk to the ambulance or we can bring the gurney and we can wheel you to the ambulance. And I said, ah, what do you think? They said, do you feel pretty good about walking? And I said, hey, yeah, we're walking. Mm -hmm. Because there was no way with all those law enforcement officers around me, I was going to get on that gurney. There was no way. 
I was walking, I was standing. Yes. There is a message to convey to the world. Yes. You know, and even then I'm thinking, oh no, I'm walking. You know, no way. I didn't survive this to get wheeled on a gurney. I'm not dying here. You know, so they get a good laugh out of it. But they did something really neat. Uh, and to this day, I think it's very beautiful where they make like a wall of blue around me. Oh. It was firefighters and police officers, right? Yes. And they walked me, shielded, absolutely shielded. They walked me to the back of the ambulance. And then I had to get in the journey, in the journey inside the ambulance. But walking over, that's when I see all these cops. And that's when you learn what really the brotherhood is all about and the camaraderie and the loyalty amongst law enforcement officers. When I see all these uniforms and all these people with guns and canines everywhere and planes and helicopters flying overhead, that's when you realize that it's a family. It's a different family. So um, so the cameras never captured me because I was surrounded by blue <laughs> as they walked me to the ambulance, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, but, but uh, it's, it stays with you, yeah. you know. Well, in the, you recovered enough to be able to uh, eventually move on to work and to continue your law enforcement career. Yes, absolutely. And so then you received the Newton Nasrach Award. Tell us about that. So... One good day, I'm somewhere in the desert, a supervisor calls me on the radio and says, hey, get to a phone. So I was near a port of entry, and he says, you need to come back to the station. I'm like, okay. So I go back to the station, and he reads me like a citation. And uh, I'm like, wow, that's about me? <laughs> <laughs> because they write it so well, and it was composed so beautifully, right? Mm -hmm. and he says, yeah, listen, kid, you're going to receive the Newton right? And then he told me what the Newton Asrak was all about and the story behind Newton and Asrak. Yeah. And I was like, like in awe, I was perplexed, right? And this is taking place probably a year after the fact. Mm -hmm. This is probably taking place in 96. And uh, he says, you need to go and put your dress uniform on and go have your picture taken. I'm like, what's going He says, we need a professional picture of you to send to headquarters. So we did that. And that was and the ceremony takes place, you know, in San Antonio, where you meet other recipients, and you hear other stories, and um, of other agents, you know, throughout the country, and, yeah, and you meet wonderful people then, and that one is a, I like it because it's a sculpture of a Border Patrol agent in dress uniform with a smoky hat, and he has the loops and the revolver. Uh -huh. You know, uh -huh. so I, I I like that one. I like the way it's, you know, the, what it looks, and it's a small statue, and I like it. And uh, then I got something called uh, the Attorney General's Exceptional Heroism, and that one was also in Washington, and that's like a wing, like a big eagle about to spread its wings and about to fly off. Mm -hmm. It's a neat thing to have, you know, I'm very privileged, very honored to have that. Well, uh, I'm just sitting here uh, in awe listening to your story, and you definitely deserved it. But there's another one um, we talked about also in our conversation. You are the first female Border Patrol agent to receive the Purple Cross, which I had never heard of. Yeah, uh, so the Purple Cross is pretty much like the Purple Heart, right? It mm -hmm. looks like a Purple Heart almost. 
and, uh, and and it's a beautiful thing but you need to know that the, this was quite a lengthy process to for me to receive it and I think years went by and remember after the merge uh, after Homeland Security was created and I'm no longer an ASU agent assigned to the Border Patrol because of the merge then I become part of ICE and part of Homeland Security Investigations. Every now and then I would get a phone call or an email from someone in headquarters. Hey, Miss Santana, this is so-and-so and we're still working on this. So it took quite a long time um, before it was finally agreed upon that, um, that they were going to give me the Purple Cross. So I was... After about 10 years, I was the first female to receive the Purple Cross. And by then, you were working uh, as an HSI, right? Yes, I was a special agent with HSI in Midland, Texas. So I received it in 2011. And, and, and it, you know, that was quite a lot of work from people behind the scenes, people in Washington, that, uh, that took care of me, that kept fighting the fight for me, uh, unbeknownst to me. You know, yes. and uh, and then we went to film the reenactment, which I think they used it to train people. You know, on the Below One Hundred program, they have used it, and uh, and basically, it's a very good reenactment. And they use the actual radio transmissions of that day, uh, and they use it to train people. Which I'm okay with that because if someone can learn a little bit of something, you know, whether it's about the mental toughness of being ready to fight or never give up or wearing your vest. Well, someone takes something, I'm okay with it, with the story being relayed. Yes, and uh, I think it's something that all of us as agents need to um, listen to. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you were willing to put it on tape for us so we can hear it straight from you. And um, I wanted to ask you, what was the disposition on those subjects that, uh, that you encountered that day? Oh, so... The, the one in the back seat is arrested immediately right there on the scene, right? Uh-huh. And then the, the, the two in the front, the shooter and the front seat passenger, they went to a nearby Circle K, called for someone to pick them up, and they fled to Mexico. So they stayed in Mexico for a while, and uh, then the, the citizen, Quintero, tells the shooter, hey, listen, I'm going back to Tucson. I can't do anything to that chick. So he came back to the U.S. and the FBI is already in the case, TPD, everyone is in the case, right? Yeah. So the shooter says nope, and he stays in a small ranch in Sonora, Mexico. So uh, lo and behold, it's Saturday night and we had filmed uh, America's Most Wanted. And it's 8 o'clock on a Saturday night and this guy is at home, chilling, drinking a six-pack of beer channel surfing when he sees his face on national TV and there's a warrant for his arrest in relation to the incident. His phone starts burning up and it's his family, his cousins and his aunts and uncles saying, hey, what kind of a man are you? We are going to turn you into the authorities if you don't turn yourself in. What a loser. How could you do that to a lady? Right? And uh, he was like, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, somebody else did it. But they turned him in, and later that week, he, he came into the marshals with an attorney, and he turned himself in. But all he got was like five years probation. He got a sweet deal, mm -hmm. because he was helping the authorities, right? Yeah. 
The shooter is eventually arrested in Mexico for other crimes, and he is prosecuted in what is called an extraterritorial prosecution, where they prepare all the evidence and they send it there yes. for him to be prosecuted for crimes committed here, right? And he gets a ridiculous sentence, like 13 years, but I know he was not going to be extradited precisely because I was alive, and I was not disappointed with that. Um, I expected it, and uh, the kid in the backseat is inadvertently deported to Mexico, so he never faced any charges. But I am okay with that, and it has never bothered me. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it, it never bothered me what happened to them afterwards. It wasn't personal, you know? That's amazing that you would say that, because uh, again, you know, so many times... Um in different situations people do take it personally and you have said many times throughout this interview that you know you were out there doing a job that was your job to do you know they had their thing and you just don't take it personal and uh but it's one thing to say it and another thing to live it <laughs> yes well, yeah uh yeah but i never i never lost a lot of sleep over those guys uh, I, you know as the years went by and prosecutions wouldn't occur or things, you know, or I was disappointed with the prosecutor because he gave this guy a sweetheart deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank God for the John Rawls in the world, uh, Judge John Rawls, who loved his Border Patrol. And he calls me into chambers and he says, what do you think about this deal? And I said, I don't care for this deal. I was never considered about this. This guy was in the car. This guy didn't do anything to stop the shooting. He shouldn't be walking away with probation. So he gave him, let's say, between three to five years and then probation. But he did some time, but it wasn't it wasn't monumental, mm -hmm. you know. Yes. But once again, that was his life, you know, his choices at the time. Yes. Now, um, as we wind down a little bit on this on this interview, um, do you have a message or anything you'd like to say to the uh, the fellow uh, female border patrol agents that are working today and uh, in, in and that are today in the border patrol? You know what? I will tell them um, to prepare themselves to be prepared. You know, if they're not prepared, if they're not ready, don't even show up. You know, just just be prepared. Uh, it's it's a challenging world. I know it's a different patrol these days. You know, but they're out there doing the job with with the best equipment they could have ever gathered for them. Because our fights in the past were over sensors, over repeaters, over vehicles, and now they have all the sophisticated equipment and cameras and sensors and computer programs that allows them to do their job better. But I will tell them to keep their chins up, to do their job to the best of their ability, you know, and to never give up, to be fighters, to be warriors, to prepare themselves. And by that, I mean in every aspect from being fit to getting the training to acknowledging their weaknesses and working on them, you know, and, and, and to continue the chase, to continue doing a good job, you know, and, and keep their heads on their shoulders, you know. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Well, I'll tell you that... Um, I uh, appreciate the, the, the fact that you took the time to, to do this interview and most of all that you uh, everything anybody has ever said about you uh, on social media, the, the, their compliments, their, their, everything that they've talked about you, it doesn't do you justice. I mean you go, far, you go so far beyond that that they're, even then as, as good as those comments are about you, they don't do you justice. 
You're very kind. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the, in this episode of the Old Patrol HQ podcast. You have honored us. You have blessed us. And um, I think everybody that listens to this podcast will walk away a little bit stronger in their spirit and a little bit more proud to be to to be in the greatest law enforcement agency on the planet right like you said the best job we ever had the best job we ever had truly well thank you ma'am thank you bye-bye i hope you enjoyed another epic interview on old patrol hq with legendary juanita santana what an example of pure guts and determination to not only fight and survive, but to win. Stay tuned for more great interviews with our Old Patrol heroes and legends. And don't forget, if you're listening on Apple or Google, to give us a review and five stars. Also, come browse through the Old Patrol HQ store at oldpatrolhq.bigcartel.com for some amazing products that you can wear proudly, honoring the history, heritage, and legacy of the Old Patrol, with a few shenanigans along the way. Ain't no patrol like the Old Patrol. Honor first, honor always.